Welcome to the future of space. Today we have Guillermo Sunland. He is the founder and CEO of Humans to Venus, Blue Marble Exploration. He's the founder of Space Angels Network, which is now Space Angels, and co-founder of Ocean Gate. Guillermo, welcome to the future space. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's start with your three words to describe space. Well, you're going to love this because the first three words that came to mind actually formed a sentence that I know you like, but it's uh, nature loves change. I know normally, I know normally you, you like to see, say chaos and I started with chaos, but I think it's, it's more change, I think, for me. It is. I think that nature doesn't see it as chaos. It's just this ongoing cha forced change and chaos is depending on which side of the equation you are. If it's not something that benefits you or forces you to go outside of your comfort zone, then that's chaos. Right. But if it's kind of the, you benefiting the change, then, you know, you're not going to really say chaos, but I love that. So nature loves yeah. change. Yeah. Now, Yemo, tell us why, what's your version or your opinion on why it matters to go to space beyond the technology and the science and the satellites and the GPS and some of the benefits that we'll have, what is the human story of going to space? Well, I don't know. Maybe I just don't see it as a human story. I see it as a planetary story and maybe it's just, uh, and actually I think you and I have had conversations about this, right? Where it's, it's just, uh, the planet nature has just kind of been evolving over time. And uh, it's always been trying to go out beyond planet Earth. And we just happen to be the first animal species that we know of um, that has been able to develop the, the technologies and the capabilities to go into space. But I really don't see it as us going into space. I see it as the planet kind of reaching out. And uh, we just happen to be the, the vehicle that the, uh, you know, that the planet's using to, to do this. Um, so I don't know, in a way it's almost like we don't really have a choice, I guess <laughs> it's, uh, I don't, I wouldn't call it like manifest destiny. Cause that seems like a human term that we, that we put on it, but I think it's just in the nature of, of how we've evolved as, as a species, uh, and as a planet. So. Absolutely. I mean, this, it's the transition that we're about to make from single planet to multi-planetary is kind of parallel to single cell going to multi-cell. It's just really this kind of life evolving and keeping, you know, pushing the envelope and the boundaries and moving to those new pastures, to these new places serves two purpose. I mean, it, it does save the, the lives that are beyond. I mean, even uh, if we take, for instance, a family, a family that has children and grandchildren. I mean, if everybody li lived under the same roof, it would actually threaten the peace of the house itself with all the resources. People need to get out so that you can um, lessen the stress on the the the, the places beyond uh, behind. When the European left, you know, when the Europeans left Europe, Europe was not going too well. And in fact, people that went away to North America actually allowed Europe to reorganize itself. And it's the same thing that's going to happen as we venture to space on, you know, from, from the perspective of the planet Earth. So, yeah, I think, um, 
you know, it's kind of interesting if we just kind of view this as, a, and by the way, I'm just thinking of this on the fly as you were just talking, that, um, that if you view it in this way, it's almost like nature's been trying different things, different ways, different species, different iterations, trying to, to break free, to get off this planet. Um, right now, we believe that we are the first species that has developed this kind of capability, but the process won't stop. Like if we don't go and, and we end up dying off as a species for whatever reason, nature will just kind of evolve and come up with a different approach to, to do it. Um, you know, whether it's right after, right as we're still here, or right after we're still here, if it's a few million years from now, nature doesn't care. They've got, nature's got a much longer timeline than, than, than we do. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, from from the nature's perspective, it doesn't do anything wrong or right. It tries things to see what works and what doesn't. Well, I always say that like it throws a bunch of things on the wall to see what stick and what doesn't stick until it doesn't stick. And then it goes on to, you know, it figures out the next strategy. You know, the dinosaurs were on Earth for, you know, 300 million or 250 million years. It was not a failure. I mean, even though they didn't really change much over 300 million years, the mammals did more in the last six, 65 million years than, you know, the entire dinosaur era for 300 million years. And it took a big rock falling from the sky to kind of reset the scale and create a blank canvas. And then I guess the Earth next startup, you know, so, so the life's first startup was the dinosaurs or the, the realm of the, the, the realm of the dinosaurs, which worked really well, but at the same time kind of plateaued and didn't go anywhere either. And then it took kind of a bankruptcy and then for another startup, which is the mammals. And within 65 million years, the evolution has been absolutely phenomenal where now the species for the first time in 4.6 billion years has the capacity to what I call export lives, um, earth knowledge because the planet has a knowledge which is life and like any other life form it wants to connect what i what i what i see for me is that the, the nature on earth shouldn't be there's no reason why it would be different than the nature of the universe what happens on earth is also happens on a bigger scale in the universe so if life is always looking to connect on earth then life is also trying to connect in the universe. So now that life is about to become multiplanetary, it's also working with other um, spots of life in the universe that is trying to connect. And these these connections are going to happen. And you know, it's life, it's nature, and it's and it's us acting on its behalf. You, you know, it's funny as you were walking through the the phases. I was thinking. I don't, I don't know how you feel about this. If you take out the whole nature part that we were just talking about, for those those folks that I know who believe we're living in a simulation, you could also replace the same thing, right? It's it's like maybe the purpose of the simulation is to get us to the point where we can go off planet and become a multi-planet and interplanetary. And the rock from the sky and all that, those are just resets of the simulation. And, uh, you know, maybe we're in a simulation that's finally going to achieve the objective or one of the objectives and, and become a multi-planet species. And if it's not us and we fail, maybe they'll just reset the simulation and start again. And hopefully the next, the next version will do it. I don't know. Yeah, this is, for me, something important about the, the 
the reasons why we do things, like even in environmental and conservation um, uh, world, a lot of the motivations to um, to provoke or inspire change comes from a place of righteousness. Like we are the species that has to save and we have to save the planet. And no, we don't have to save the planet. It's more about ourselves. Um, it's understanding that that if it's up to us to choose the kind of world that we live in, but if we, if we don't do it, or if we do it at our expense, we're the ones losing life will continue. The planet will continue, you know, that little speck of sand that we are in that, in that, in that chain of evolution is just like, you know, it's a, it's a little fly <laughs> from the perspective of the earth and it will continue. And whoever is, in history and, and, and in nature, the loss of one is always the gain for another. And even ourselves, our culture, we actually exist because we rose on top of other cultures who collapsed in the past. And, you know, it's, it's unfortunate because it's at their detriment, but it's for our own benefit. And if we fall tomorrow, if our species fall, then it will, be, it will become at the benefit of another in the same way that when the dinosaurs disappeared, it was for our own benefit. So um, for me, I'm, I'm always really um, trying to, to change that perspective. So it's, it goes from righteousness to more humble and more inclusive rather than kind of black or white or right or wrong. Yeah, I think one of my favorite uh, t-shirts is the one that says, uh, you know, the planet's fine, humanity's screwed. So. Or nature is crude. And that's the other thing that like, I tried to, to reframe, you know, the human species is not a bad species. Life is messy by design because it, it, that's what assures evolution and learning. Learning is hard. It's, it's, it's challenging by default. Yeah, exactly. Talking about becoming multiplanetary. Uh, well, before we get to what you're working on right now, Humans to Venus, you have a really interesting journey. Um, you have your fingers in many different um, areas. You were in the ocean um, exploration. Uh, you've been involved with a lot of exploration uh, organizations. Can you tell us a little bit the journey of Guillermo from high school to, uh, to founder and CEO of Humans to Venus? Oh my God, from high school, geez. Um, actually, it's funny, uh, I was thinking from high school, that's a long time, but actually, I guess my journey actually started before then um, because I still have distinct memories of when I was 11 years old and I had a recurring dream that I was gonna be the, uh, the uh, commander of the first Martian colony, right? So if you think about an 11 year old thinking that, that's kind of a strange thing for an 11 year old to be thinking, but, um, so I guess uh, the first part of my life was really tailored around that. I was really focused on becoming a NASA astronaut. Um, and then uh, my eyesight went bad, so I couldn't be a pilot. And not being a pilot, and I wasn't a scientist, I couldn't become an, an astronaut. So my life took a completely different path. I ended up going to law school and, um, and then going into the Marine Corps, and I served active duty in the Marine Corps for four years. Uh, but after that, I came out, and I co-founded an internet company in San Francisco in 1998, 99 timeframe. Um, and that kind of launched me into uh, 20 years of doing a variety of different technology startups. Actually now 24 years. Oh my God. 
it's, I'm getting older. Um, I have to update my, my bio now in, when, I, when I talk. It's not 20 years, it's 24 years, almost 25. Um, but yeah, basically doing a, a variety of different tech, technology startups. Uh, somewhere along the line, I realized that as much as I liked the creative aspect of starting new uh, organizations and new companies, I needed to do it within a field that I was more passionate about than just pure technology. And uh, that's when I kind of reached back into my childhood dreams and, uh, and reconnected with my 11 year old self and, uh, and started looking at space stuff. So I've, I've been active in the private space industry for 20 years now. And um, that number I know, that's 20 years. Um, and, uh, and I've been doing a, a lot of work um, in that area. Along the way though, as, as you mentioned, I did take a little bit of a left turn uh, uh, for a bit. Uh, I, I co-founded a company called OceanGate, which uh, designs, builds, and op operates uh, five-person submarines to go on, submersibles to go underwater. Uh, and with that, um, we did a bunch of underwater exploration expeditions. Uh, the company is still around, doing great. They are uh, this summer going to be the, doing the second annual science expedition to the wreck of the Titanic in, in the North Atlantic. Um, so for me, that was an interesting uh, parallel path, not really a digression, because I think uh, piloting a submersible underwater is probably as close as you can come to being an astronaut without actually leaving the planet. Um, so uh, that's basically my, my kind of two or three parallel paths, right? I've done some technology startups uh, focused on the space industry and then in parallel doing uh, the ocean exploration uh, component. Um, along the way, though, since you mentioned conservation earlier, I, I think um, one of the things I think you, you and I have talked about before is uh, explorers and especially astronauts who, who leave the planet uh, tend to be some of the most ardent uh, conservationists in large part because they appreciate uh, how, how fragile our, our planet is. So along the way, I've also done um, uh, quite a bit of work in the area of uh, conservation, especially uh, with rainforest conservation. And now I'm working on a project uh, that's focused more on sustainable agriculture. So it's a little bit of, you know, land, sea, space kind of, uh, kind of, kind of career. If you can call it a career, I don't think it is a career. It's more like a life, meandering life path, but yeah. Well, if it's if it pays the bill, then it's definitely part of, a, a, I guess, a career. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I was talking to Scott Berzinski uh, a couple of days ago. I was interviewing from uh, for Future Space. And um, yeah, so he went down to the Titanic last year and they're doing their second trip to the Titanic this year. Um, so I'm really happy because the Ocean Gate was one, I believe, one year delayed in their in their um, trip to the Titanic. So uh, it finally come to, uh, to fruition and uh, everything is working, working yeah. out well. Yeah, and at some point, at some point we, not that Scott's uh, anything about records, he's very much an explorer and a, and a, and a medical doctor and a, a philanthropist and an inventor and all that. He's not about uh, ego or records, but at some point, we have to figure out how to get him down to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, because then uh, he'll have the trifecta of flying in space, summiting Mount Everest, and then also uh, hitting the Marianas Trench. So, yep. And now he's like he's uh, training to uh, for like a specific uh, hike in the Grand Canyon. So, uh, 
yeah he's uh he's always looking for the next one to uh to uh, to do now yeah. you are on the next venture that is off planet um like many many other people people space has become no more of a of a science fiction realm or or a dream it's actually a, a possibility and while a lot of people are going away from the sun and towards mars and then beyond you are looking back well not back you're looking closer to the sun to venus um share with us what is humans to venus and why venus and um what is the mission of, of the company well, Humans to Venus itself is still uh, evolving as a, as a business model and as a business. And hopefully soon we'll have some, some more announcements on what we're doing with that. Um, but the general question of what we're trying to do, I guess, is, is help make humanity a multi-planet species, specifically looking at Venus as, as, as a potential destination. Um, you know, as you said, a lot of people are looking at orbit, orbit orbiting space stations around Earth. Uh, some people are even looking at free-floating space stations. Um, obviously, there's a lot of interest in the moon, uh, whether it's from NASA or the Chinese, or the Russians and, and private companies. Um, and, uh, and of course, the, the headlines are always with uh, Elon pushing, um, Elon Musk pushing, uh, sending uh, people to Mars and setting up colony on Mars. And Mars has always held a fascination for humans anyway, for millennia. Um, uh, but for me, I was trying to figure out what to do with the next phase of my career, something that would be significant and would add some, some, um, value to, to humanity. And one of the things that I realized is that there was a gap in, um, uh, in this human strategy for becoming a multi-planet species, um, for, for long-term, like on a permanent basis, multi-generational kind, kind of basis. Um, and for me, it was looking at some of the shortcomings of orbiting space stations, moon settlements, and, and Mars settlements, and that was gravity. That was the, the number one word that just kept coming up is, you know, there's so many challenges to, to taking the, the Homo sapien uh, body off this planet um, that we can fix or we can address via modern technology, whether it's radiation problems or breathable air or food, water, waste, um, any of the temperature, vacuum, all that stuff, we can, we can fix or we can address or we can mitigate a lot of these, a lot of these hazards through modern technology. But the one thing that we can't do anything about in large part because we still don't fully understand how it works is gravity. And um, with today's uh, scientific knowledge and medical knowledge, we're still not sure what long-term effects uh, uh, microgravity or less than one G gravity would have on the human body over generations. And um, probably most, most folks that are listening to this know that in, in orbit, we've got microgravity, uh, 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 very low gravity. In, um, on the moon, it's one sixth of what's on uh, Earth and what we experience here on Earth, and in Mars, it's 38%. Uh, so scientists to this day don't know what kind of effect, negative effect that's going to have on the human body. So I was always troubled by that and, and looking around, is there anywhere else in the solar system where we could at least get one G of gravity? 
And uh, about four or five years ago, I came across some, some uh, scientific papers that uh, based on some of the data collected by some of the probes that we've sent to Venus, scientists believe that about 50 kilometers off the surface of Venus in the Venusian atmosphere, we would experience 1G of gravity. Um, and that just kind of perked up in my head and I looked even more and it turns out that um, there are even more benefits uh, 50 kilometers off the Venusian surface. Uh, one is that you still have enough atmosphere above you to provide sufficient radiation protection, even though uh, you're closer to the sun and Venus does not have a magnetic field. Um, the temperature at 50 kilometers is relatively bearable for us. It's, it's hotter than it is here, but it's something that can be overcome again with technology. Um, the atmosphere is not breathable, but we can convert it. Uh, the clouds there are made of sulfuric acid. Again, not ideal, but, um, but we have technology that, that can get past that. Um, so it just seems like a, a good, um, potential destination, at least worthy of consideration. I'm not saying that's where humanity should go. Um, but if we're going to talk about leaving this planet, we're going to talk about orbiting space stations or the moon or Mars, we may as well also talk about um, Venus and, and at least go get more data and do more tests and see if it is possible to actually do something there. I think it reflects like really something about your sense of entrepreneurship to not necessarily follow the group, but look for what makes sense. Like obviously, you know, when with your company and with Ocean Gate and Blue Marble, obviously there's a, there's a direction of exploration, but you look at it and you look more as the reasons that we're, that we collectively are trying to achieve. Mm -hmm. And then you look elsewhere that just where everybody else is going not just following just because people are going, but looking at it like, okay, we're looking for places. Mars is definitely one of them, but there's way other, I mean, there are many other places. Let's look at what could be a first step or a better first step. I think that's a, like a, a really kind of a characteristic of your, of your entrepreneurship. What do you think? What do you think? Well, it's, it's funny because um, you know this from being an explorer. I think it's the, you and I have talked about the explorer mindset, right? And uh, and I think ex exploration and entrepreneurship are very similar, very similar types of mindsets. And um, and I think you're right. I think explorers and entrepreneurs will will look at a situation, see a bunch of people, as, especially when you see a bunch of people going uh, in one direction. Even if you're not looking in that direction, when you see a bunch of people going in one direction, you're like. Okay, I see why they're going there, but that means there might be an opportunity over there. And, um, or from an explorer standpoint, it's like, okay, everyone already knows where they're going there. That means there may be an opportunity to find some, something new on, over there and maybe learn something new over there. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think that is the kind of uh, mindset that uh, both entrepreneurs and, and explorers tend to have. Now, so what is the technology right now that would make Venus possible and what would be some of the biggest challenges? I mean, obviously, you know, being 50 kilometers or 50 miles um, off the ground, uh, you're living in the clouds, uh, building, bringing the stuff over there, um, the acid rain. But what is the current technology that would kind of make it possible? Uh, so this is, again, a lot like exploration, right? Where you don't know what you don't know, right? So 
we still have so much, so many questions left to uncover, not even questions to answer. We don't even know which questions to ask yet. Um, so I think everything's pretty much um, theoretical at this point. We've had um, a number of probes that, that have been sent to Venus, and there's a few more coming in the next few years. Um, but so let's just focus on um, the questions that we do know and we may not have answers for. And I think the no number one is transportation of, of humans between here and Venus. We have sent probes there, so we have not sent humans there. And uh, no human has gone beyond the moon. So there are a lot of issues with taking humans beyond uh, the protection of Earth's magnetic field, especially when it comes to radiation. So these are issues that we're going to face regardless of where we go after the moon, whether it's Venus, Mars, or anywhere else. Um, so I think that's probably what we're coming closest to being able to do, right? We've got the, um, the, uh, the uh, capability coming on, on deck, especially with uh, Starship, with SpaceX developing Starship. And, uh, and I think that will kind of get us to the next, the next level. Um, and and uh, honestly, I think uh, Elon, when he designed Space uh, Starship, I don't think he was planning on it going toward the sun and uh, toward Venus. I think he was planning on it going out toward Mars. So I don't even know if Starship is designed to go in that, in that direction. Um, but those are probably the, the biggest things. You know, technologically, can we get a human being from, uh, from Earth to Venus? And along the way, what's going to be the effect of radiation and solar flares and all that on the human body uh, between here and there. I think th those are going to be the, the, the biggest asset and, and the biggest uh, risk. I was, you were talking and it got me thinking, I don't know if you've ever read the, um, the book Homo Deus, the follow-up to Homo sapiens by, uh, what's his name? The author. Um, anyway, I'll put it in the, um, in the links, but he talks about how when our species succeeded in managing the what he, what he calls the, the vulnerability of human species, so famines, war, um, these 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 realities that we had to deal with that drastically reduced the population and were like um, big tragedies in our evolution. And I look at the history of exploration um, on Earth, and even when it was the Americas or any other places, the human toll was tremendous. When you cross the ocean on the boat, you, you would not even know if you were going to make it. Um, even when you get to shore, the idea of crossing the enemies, the, 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 the starvation, I mean, everything, there was just like a fraction of people that would make it across. I feel that now, even in terms of exploration, there will never be equivalently that same kind of human toll of exploration. It's not like we're going to send, you know, 2000 people to Venus on a one way without, in, without knowing that most of them can survive. I think that the that next evolution, the challenges are going to be more logistically, we're going to send robots, but the, that that vulnerability of humanity is not a factor anymore in the bag of challenges. What do you think? You're saying that it's not a factor anymore because we can avoid it or because we don't have the stomach for it anymore? 
No, because we can avoid it. Like right now we have a helicopter and a rover is on Mars that are, you know, negotiating and learning about the, the so by the time that we do send people on Earth uh, on the on Mars, yes, there will there will be the unknown and there will be the unexpected realities, but you're not gonna have the same kind of like what happened, you know, in the when uh, the people went to establish themselves in south uh, 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 south of Argentina, and now it's called Port Famine because everybody who went over there died of starvation because they couldn't they didn't know well first of all they didn't want to eat like the native people who were there but everybody ended up dead you know because of starvation that that the cost of 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 human lives I feel that we're not going to see that anymore in our expansion into um, outer space. Well, it's funny because as as I was asking you the question, I realized that it didn't matter what you answered. I was going to agree with you on both sides um, because because it, it is true that um, now with modern technology, we can greatly reduce the risk of exploration and for human exploration. Uh, and that's true anywhere, including underwater, right? We before we send a, a submersible down with humans in it, we can send ROVs, remotely operated vehicles down there. We can send AUVs, the autonomous uh, vehicles, like the ones that just found the, in, the wreck of the endurance uh, in Antarctica. Um, so so th there is a, a uh, 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 the capability that we have now to reduce that risk uh, that we've never had in, in, in in human history, which I guess goes back to what we started with, with you know nature evolving over time, and now all of a sudden we're the first, as far as we know, the first species on this planet to have this kind of capability. Um, but I also worry about the other part that I asked you is I do worry that um, that as a species we're losing our stomach for the human toll of exploration, um, and no matter how much we mitigate the risk, there's always going to be risk. Uh, and, um, and as long as there's risk, there is a possibility of loss of human life. And we, I, I think we're starting to, maybe we're getting soft as a species. I don't know. Like even a century ago, uh, since we're, I just mentioned the endurance, right? When Shackleton left, uh, to go to Antarctica, they weren't sure if they were coming back. And, uh, if we lost all of them, that was part of the price you pay for exploring Antarctica. Um, so I don't know if we've got that the stomach for something like that anymore. You know, if, if somebody's doing a, a mission, even, even these missions to um, the upcoming missions to the moon, you know, there's there's a risk that people die on those, um, and it's not as it's not a hundred percent safe. Uh, but I would hope that as a species we can get past that. We can accept the fact that there are going to be casualties. We can accept the fact that we've done everything we could to mitigate them. I guarantee you that every single person who goes up to space knows that they un they uh, understand the risks. They know that there's a chance they're not coming back. They accept it. And I bet if you ask any sing every single one of them, you know, what would you want us to do if you died? They'd say, just keep going, you know, <laughs> step over my carcass and just keep going, you know, learn, learn the mistakes, learn what happened, learn from it, and then just keep going. I think that the um, getting too comfortable is an it's an unforeseen, unwanted consequences of 
creating stability and and but fortunately the way that nature works is that that stability that certainty always can go to a certain extent and where at that time you have to go outside of that comfort zone to figure out how to negotiate or to solve the next problem um like right now you know it's climate change we've we climate change or for me it's more that the our relationship with the environment that is just not only climate change but its resources it's everything has created a stress point that independently of how comfortable we want to stay we have to figure out we have to go outside of that comfort zone and in that instance there are people who are more uh, inclined in, in 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 taking the jump um you know it's the same it's the same it's kind of similar to independently of how you want to protect someone from pain and failure in life they will experience it even if you don't want to like a relationship that is broken you can pretend that it will never happen and you want to stay in your little comfort zone for as long as you want to but at one point it will explode or it will implode and then the ones who will survive or will grow from that uh, that, that uh, situations are the ones who actually went ahead and and took the lead or have the skills to negotiate it but you know i think it's more of a cycle and now we're towards that end of that cycle of comfortableness and and um stability technology you know i wrote this piece about embracing um embracing perspective depth and perspective i i do believe that there's we've lost a certain understanding of how things get to us or happen in life um the complexity of these achievements um you know you look even at a, a television before in the days you know there was a TVs were, were bulky and and big and you know you your imagination went into like there must be something happening amazing in this huge box for this thing to appear now it's like this tiny little you know super slim thing and it goes well it must be nothing if it's that slim then nothing is really that extraordinary to be so minimal but in reality there's a lot that goes into it and i think that that is one of the failures that i see in our education system is that we don't emphasize enough on the on the history of how things get to be so that people should be reminded of the journey of the failures of the experiment of how what it takes and even you know earlier you and i were talking about how you know what's happening in ukraine and russia now like we want to erase and cancel all these things that come from russia that have nothing to do with 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 the war just gives this really black and white and simplistic view of the world that i think creates more damage than benefits yeah i think one of my favorite stories now, now i can't remember the exact number but you know the the famous story of the the journalist that was interviewing thomas edison and you know how he managed to keep going and persevere through i don't know what the number was let's say 700 failures in develop in the process of developing the light bulb and edison was very perplexed by the question because he's like i didn't fail 700 times i just found 700 ways not to invent the light bulb um and and i think that's um kind of that um that, that comfort with failure in the pursuit of innovation or exploration or scientific discovery um 
something that I, I hope we're not losing as a, as a species, because I think that's critical to the way we evolve and grow both individually and as a species. So. Yeah. Cause that, that, um, necessity for failure in, for innovation or for a business is also a necessity for the personal growth and for the cultural growth. You know, you have, you have to experience your own personal failures of character to make you realize how you want to be as a human species in the same way that as a society we need to be reminded of those pitfalls and these failures so that we can decide what we prioritize and how we want to move forward and what we're what we're experiencing right now in in the world in the current world both with the climate change you know some of the the big existential questions that we that we're asking ourselves is part of that process what is going to define our next 50 years or 100 years of evolution, knowing where we are today. So it's, you know, it's, it's part of that journey of ups and downs. And, you know, you're an explorer. Um, there's no situation in life that is perfect. And it's never meant to be perfect. It's never meant to be fair. It's meant to be explored so that we can learn and we can grow individually and as a society. By the way, since you mentioned um, uh, timelines, um, I think that's another fear that I have, mostly because I've spent the last 50 years living in the United States um, as, as innovative and as forward thinking as this country is. One of the things that I worry about is we've become too near-term focused uh, as a society, um, which is not... As a species, I think there are other countries, other societies that have much longer um, uh, visions for, for their timelines. Uh, for us, if it's a government program, we look in two-year election, election cycles, maybe four-year presidential uh, cycles. Um, if, if it's a public company, we look at timelines of quarter by quarter, looking at earnings. If we're a high-growth venture-backed company, we look at uh, life through the eyes of a VC, and their model is five to seven years. So it's very difficult for us to take on, as a society, and us meaning Americans, it's very tough for us to take on long-term long projects, 10, 20, 30, 50 year projects. Um, and sometimes that's what's necessary for big innovations. Sometimes that's what's necessary for scientific breakthroughs, um, exploration. Uh, you need these longer timelines. And so, Something I've been thinking about for the last five or 10 years is if we look at the next 100 years, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating because I'm seeing if I'm going to get myself in hot water here. Um, you know, part of the hubris of, of America is uh, that we believe the world revolves around us because we're in the lead, quote unquote. Um, but we've really only been a leading superpower for a few decades, whereas other countries have been around for centuries, if not millennia. And over the next 50 or 100 years, in areas like exploration or scientific um, uh, discoveries, or in our case, space, um, we may be a leading country today, but I don't know if we're going to be a leading country over the next 50 or 100 years. I don't know if we've got the long-term vision for it. I don't think if we've got the stomach for, for and the patience and the perseverance for long-term projects. 
Um, you know, Arab countries tend to think much longer term than we do. Uh, the Chinese think a lot longer term than we do. Um, even Russians think a lot longer term than we do. Um, so I don't know where uh, the Homo sapiens species is going to find its its resolve to evolve to the next level. Um, but it might not actually it might not be in the United States. I don't know. It's it's definitely um, it it's a characteristic of of I think of aging part when you're young and you know America North America is the youngest culture on the block really you know we're the we're the arrogant teenager who, believe, who believes that the world is black and white and you know and it's it's like this and it's like that we haven't suffered much as a society in our in our world compared to the rest of the world when you're young you need that black and white energy so that you can create a place for yourself you know when if if when we're 18 years old we saw the world with the complexity that we, or with the grayness that we see it in our fifties, maybe it would be harder to start because you'd be like, well, you know, it's a little bit complicated and all these, the, the, these, the thought process that goes into it that you cannot have when you're younger. Um, and then you start to look at the bigger picture and, you know, your priorities are different. The U.S. is still that, that that teenager, and other other cultures now are finding themselves kind of at the end of of their own cycle of of their journey. Of they were arrogant at one point, they lost everything, so they got they started to be more humble. They had to accept defeat and lose what they took for granted, and now they're coming to back to a place where. They stayed in the game. Not all of them stayed in the game. You know, if you look at all the the last um, big legacies of, of power, uh, the, you know, China is really the evident one. But there is a bunch of them who are not there anymore. So China is really the first one who was a superpower, who now has the capacity or is on on the on the journey to to become the superpower. And that, I I don't. It's not that I I don't believe that the U.S. There's another capacity, but it would be it would be it would be against at the opposite of history if the U.S. would not follow in the same pattern as every other empire before. It's not a question of if or it's more when it will happen, and maybe it's happening right now. But it will, you know, if we circle back to what we were talking earlier. The, the fall of one is always at the benefit of another and life will succeed to move on in the same way that life has succeeded. You know, when the U.S. became a superpower, it was for the benefit of the earth. I do believe that it was for the benefit of, of pretty much everyone and whoever becomes that superpower, that leader um, in the future, I do believe it will be for, hopefully, that it will be for the benefit of, of the, the, our societies. So I guess it was inevitable that as we're talking about space, somehow we took a left turn into politics, but <laughs> and uh, and modern uh, political and economic history. But uh, it's it's funny you were mentioning um, uh, about uh, kind of talking your way out of things. Uh, about 15, 15 years ago or so, I was uh, on a panel with three other entrepreneurs at a tech startup uh, event. 
And, um, and the moderator was asking us, you know, when is the best time to start a company as far as what, what's the best time in your life? And all four of us agreed that there are two, there are probably two ideal times to start uh, a new, a new company. One is when you're very young, 18 to 22 or 23, yeah. because you just don't know what you don't know. You don't know that what you're doing is impossible. You don't know that what you're doing has zero chance of succeeding. Um, and, but you do it anyway, because you don't know. And then the other time is late in your career, after you've retired, after you've had your success, you've made your money, you've raised your family, you've done all these things. And now you're looking for something to do, but more importantly, something meaningful and something that, that kind of uh, makes you feel um, worthy and that you're leveraging all of your lifelong lessons and, and you've got nothing to lose because you've already had your career. You may as well like, give it a shot. The worst time to start, a the flip side of that was when's the worst time to start a company? And the worst time to start a company is in your late 30s and early to mid 40s because you've got a lot to lose. You're you may or may not be raising a family. You may or may not have relationships. You, you're on the verge of starting to get into, um, you know, your health is, is not a, a, the youthful given that it was when you were a teenager, early 20s. Um, and you've got just enough experience to realize that, you know, what you're trying to do has a lot of holes in it and has, carries a lot of risk. And, and uh, you can basically talk your way out of any idea you come up with. Um, so... Uh, and it was funny because the four of us are up on stage and we're all agreeing to this. And then we looked around and realized we were all in our early 40s. And we're like, wait, but we, but we were all entrepreneurs and we're like, you know, that's right. We're talking ourselves out of every idea that we have. So. <laughs> yeah, Mo, I feel like, you know, this conversation, you and, I, you and I, I know that like every time we start a conversation, I think we need to have like two, three bottles of wine lined up so <laughs> we continue. If uh, if people want to learn about humans to Venus right now, where can they go? Uh, right now, we've got a, an interim kind of preliminary website at humans to Venus.com. The two being the number two, uh, all put together. Okay. Um, that, that's got um, that doesn't really have what we're working on, but what it does have is uh, a collection of a lot of information from around the internet related to Venus and uh, specifically related to establishing a human presence in the Venusian atmosphere. There's a lot more content out there than I ever thought. And when I started looking around and, and finding all these old pockets of great videos and, and resources, um, we ended up putting together a website that just kind of collected it all in one place. Um, and that's a good place to start. And then from there, we're going to be building everything out over the next few months. And you were talking about some other project, uh, sustainable, uh, not farming. Was it sustainable farming? Yeah, it's uh, agriculture, agriculture, yeah. Um, the, that, that, that project's very early in its, in its very formative stages, but we'll, we'll have something come out probably later this year. Um, in any case, we'll have your, um, your LinkedIn profile in the, the link in the, the comments and descriptions and all the blue marble exploration. Also, the ones who want to, uh, want to have a look at Ocean Gate. Um, I think that we need to, um, I need for the future space to have like a regular guest that comes like every two months so that we can kind of expand and just, you know, kind of talk about everything. I'm going to elect you, Kiromo. Every two months, you and I, we're going to, we're going to circle back and we're going to have our conversation on the future of space. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'd be happy to do it. Excellent. Well, I look forward. And um, I know that you and I will, will meet up at some point this year. So uh, until then, take good care. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Talk to you soon.
All right. Bye.